All right, well, grab your Bibles and let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it's on page 1008, I believe, and um, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 today, 4 through 11. Um, I don't know who it was who said it. They said to, to err or err, whatever you, however you pronounce it, is human, to forgive divine. And that's, of course, true. All of us make mistakes, and that's just part of being human. But part of being human is also suffering, is also hardship, is pain. I don't know anybody who has not suffered, gone through hardship, have pain in their lives. This might be one of the most relevant messages you hear uh, all year. Now, what causes suffering? What causes hardship? Well, we could attribute it to all kinds of things, but sometimes it, it very often is caused by that difference between our expectations and reality, right? So when there is this gap between what we expected would happen and what actually happens, we call that gap in some measure suffering. Now, some of those gaps are massive and some of them are very narrow, right? So there's a there's a whole, um, I don't know what you call it, uh, something on social media happening where, where people are making fun of the narrow gap uh, because people, we in the first world, uh, we have these first world problems and we consider it suffering, right? Some of my favorites are, um, my 90-inch LED has a glare that my 60-inch plasma never had. That's that's a gap between right, reality and, and expectation, just not reasonable. Or the luxury hotel where we booked a reservation wouldn't let us register under doctor. Now the staff there will only think we have our master's degrees. Poor them, right? Um, I can't remember which car I drove to the mall. That's, that's, that's the first world problem. Or how about this? My house is so big, I can't get Wi-Fi in the kitchen. Poor them. My favorite one. My barista didn't even bother to make a design on the foam of my vanilla latte. So these are, these are gaps between expectations and reality, but they're small, tiny gaps. But sometimes there are big gaps, right? Sometimes we really do suffer. There are people in this room, that's not reality for you. Your suffering is very, very real. We prayed for our brothers and sisters around the world last, last week. We prayed for those in, in, in the Middle East and the suffering that's happening with, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's suffering. There's real pain. And everybody in this room at one time or another will suffer through real pain. And, and when that happens, that's hard. Nobody likes suffering. Nobody likes hardship. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes to lose a loved one. Nobody likes to get cancer. Nobody likes to flunk a class. Nobody likes to, whatever, we could go on and on, be in a bad marriage. But we all have these things that we're suffering with. And what can happen and what the writer of Hebrews is concerned about is that when suffering comes, that we think, oh my gosh, it, it's random. It feels like it doesn't make any sense. And I thought when I came to Jesus, my life would get better and that everything would be more smooth, and they found out actually in some ways it made their life more rocky, and they're th thinking, I, I don't know that I want this anymore. And they feel this temptation to go back and just say, you know, either punt and I'll put it aside or go back to religion, this sort of safe Judaism that they were in. This is happening in, in the book of Hebrews, and the writer's saying, man, I don't want you to go back. And so I want to give you a dose of reality. And so he told us these great stories in Hebrews chapter 11. He told us about these great men and women. And some of them had these you know, incredible stories of how God used them in their lives and their faith. But some of them were sawn in two and were killed by the sword. And I mean, all these horrific things. And so he's saying, okay, let's, let's get a splash of reality. Suffering is common to everyone. 
So why does it happen? Like, does the Bible, that's what I love about Scripture. See, see, there's a lot of people that think Christians are just these people who deny reality. That we're just sort of slap happy and, you know, just, just smile, everything's fine, we're all good. But no, we suffer, and we suffer deeply. And there's, there's things that your Bible tells you and me about suffering to help us to understand how to navigate through this life. So why do we suffer? Why do we go through suffering this life? And the writer of Hebrews is going to show us three things, okay? So I just want to sort of take them in turn. He's going to correlate suffering and say, I want you to show why suffering and this are combined, okay? So he's going to correlate these two things. And the first thing he's going to correlate for us is suffering and sin, okay? He wants us to see how sin is related to suffering. Now, now watch this. So start reading. Uh, start reading in chapter uh, 12, verse 4. Hardship and sin, okay? Number, number, uh, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Okay, now, so he's saying there is this correlation between our suffering and sin. But here's the first thing he's saying. He's saying, um, look it. You haven't, this struggle, that, by the way, that word struggle is where we get our word antagonize or uh, antagonist, right? When you studied literature, there's this, there's this force, there's this, this thing that's coming against you and you have to struggle against it. And he's saying, he's saying you haven't yet, in your struggle against sin and in, in sort of trying to defeat this antagonist, you haven't shed your own blood, but who has? Class. Yes, that's always the answer in church. If somebody says, it's Jesus. So it's Jesus, right? Jesus suffered. Suffered to the point of shedding his blood. Right? Now, now, in part, he's saying this. What makes you think, Hebrew Christian? What makes you think, Foothill Church? What makes you think that if Christ suffered, you won't suffer? He was perfect. He never sinned. And yet, he shed his blood. He struggled until the end of his life, right, he gave up his life. So we see that and say, look, I'm not, I'm not immune. Nobody's immune from suffering. In fact, everybody will suffer. But he says there's this struggle against sin. And I think we could legitimately say that all suffering in one way or another is related to sin. Now, now, now be careful because here's what I'm not saying. Because you sin today, God's going to punish you. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that we live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a world that, that it's like fish in water. We are people in sin. Sin is all around us. The wages of sin are, are screaming at us through the creation. Every tsunami, every earthquake, every rumble of the ground is because we live in a fallen world. It's groaning, waiting for its redemption. So we have all kinds of suffering that simply happens because we live in a fallen world. And so we, we struggle against that in some ways every day of our lives. We struggle against our own personal sin. If I make a bad choice, if I make a sinful choice, there's a very good likelihood that I will suffer some kind of temporal consequence because of that. If I decide that I'm going to ignore God and, and I don't care what his word says and um, I'm going to go and commit adultery with a woman who isn't my wife, 
I'm going to suffer because of that. My marriage, my family, my children, all these things will be ramifications of me deciding because of my own personal sin, there will be suffering. Count on it. But I think there's another kind of suffering. And it is simply that struggle against my sin nature. And I think in a very real way, we can say that is a daily struggle for us, isn't it? I struggle. I mean, he just talked about last week, he said, he said, we have to lay aside these sins that cling so closely. Every one of us have those, right? There are these sins that, that if I, when I say that, when I say you, there is some sin in your life that you struggle with mightily and regularly, right? For some of you, you'd say, you know, it's sexual sin, it's lust, it's pornography, Some would say it's pride. Some would say it's arrogance. It's impatience. It's anger. I mean, all kinds. I I struggle with with violence. We have this war going on. He says, this is a struggle. And he says, you are called to struggle to the point of shedding your own blood. What's the point? You're going to wage war against that sin nature until the day you die. Now, I'm not saying you can never overcome a besetting sin. In fact, I believe you can because Hebrews 12 tells us we can. But I'm saying you will struggle, at the very least, against this nature that is now inside of you. See, before you became a Christian, you didn't, you didn't live, if I can say it this way, with two natures. You, were, you did not have the Spirit of God living inside of you, making war with your flesh, making war with your sin. It was like, hey, I'm fine. I didn't feel any contradiction. If I wanted to do it, I did it. It didn't bother me. Now I've got this Spirit living inside of me. And now, man, I'm, I've, got, I've got, as the poet says, two natures beat within my breast. The one is cursed, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. That's what's happening inside of all of us who are Christians. There is a war happening. And everybody who is, who is really a Christian will say, I feel it, man. I feel it all the time. And we're called to struggle. So how do we win this struggle? He told us in chapter 12, verse 2, we look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We consider Jesus, right? We we look at him and and, and, and we we, we hold our mind there and and, and let him deliver us from that. The Bible gives us all kinds of things. Like this is that God has given us means to war against this sin nature. So, So look what Paul says. In, in Romans 8, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. That is, if you're just going to do what your flesh wants to do, if you're, you say, I, I feel like doing this, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we war with sin? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot do that unless you know Jesus Christ, unless Jesus Christ has saved you and His Spirit has come to live inside of you. That's what it means to be a Christian. There is no Christianity without the Spirit of God living inside of you. And so now he'll go to war for you. I think John Piper is really helpful. He's, he's created this acronym. He uses the word anthem to give us some sort of just good, solid wisdom about how do you deal with these besetting sins? How do you deal with these things that, that you know, there's this sin in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wage war uh, against it. What do I actually do? So, so let me just walk through this very quickly. 
He uses this, the, the A, the N, they're all going to stand for something. The A stands for avoid unfitting desires. And he says it that way because, look, we don't put ourselves, you don't intentionally put yourselves in situations where you know are going to inflame these sinful desires that you have. Right? And, 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 and look, he, I think this is wise that he calls it unfitting desires because not all desires are bad. Look, sexual desire is a good thing, but it can become unfitting, can't it? Right? The desire to provide for your family, to make money, that's a good thing. It can become unfitting. The desire for food can be a good thing, but it can become unfitting. So we've got to avoid those things, not to intentionally put ourselves there. The N stands for say no to sinful desires within five seconds. That's about all you have. And if you, I mean, this is just good wisdom. If you struggle with a sin, you know with when you feel it coming up, you have about five seconds to say no, forcefully, no. You're walking down the mall, guys, and there's the Victoria's Secret store, and it's just blaring at you, and you can look over it and check it out, or it might, it might, it might you know, come into view. What do you do? You're in the middle of the mall. You just go, no! And everybody's like, whoa, Right? <laughs> No, but you turn, you turn forcefully and say, no, I will not look back and let my gaze fall so that I just take it all in and let my mind go where I know my mind will go. You say no. The T stands for turn forcefully toward Christ. I mean, here's where you go from playing defense to offense. Here's where you go from I'm saying no, 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 to now I want to get my father help me to bring every thought into captivity uh, help me to, to think about Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Help me to reckon myself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Help me, God. Help me to hold these things. Now, 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 now put that in my mind. Turn and turn forcefully. The H stands for hold. Hold on to the promises, right? You do that. So here I am. I'm thinking about these things, and I hold them until Victoria's secret is pushed aside. And it's It's gone. Thank you, Jesus, whatever your sin is. The E stands for enjoy. See, most of us don't enjoy our affection for Christ. The Bible tells us over, I mean, just in so many ways, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But most of us don't think that way. And you know why? Because that's cultivated. We have so cultivated the habit of our mind to turn to sin. We are so habituated to sin, like a fish is to water, that it's very easy. This is a whole new discipline to enjoy the affections that we can have for Christ, where you say, Christ, you are superior. I mean, this is, you are, you are everything I want, everything I hope for. And get to a place where you've disciplined your mind to do that. And the last one is, the M, and that's move away from vulnerable behaviors. Now, I love this. This is very wise. Just move. Just move. Get up and do something active. Right? Sin flourishes. Hear me. Sin flourishes in the garden of idleness, in the garden of leisure. And he's saying, listen to me. If you have to get up and pound a nail just to move, if you have to get up and fix a door or a faucet or a toilet, if you've got to get up and just run around the block a few times, go do it, anything. Move away. Move away from all those vulnerable behaviors and help you. See, see there is this 
there is this um, correlation between our suffering and sin. And God says, I want to help you with that. I, I want to help you overcome these sinful desires and overcome sin in your life. The second correlation he makes is between, between hardship and forgetfulness, okay? Now, now look how he does this. So look at, look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This issue of remembering, 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 don't forget, don't forget. You read your Old Testament and you get so frustrated at the nation of Israel. Why do you keep going back to idols? Why do you keep doing what you're doing? And over and over you're going to hear God saying, remember. Don't you remember what I did to you when I drew you out of Egypt? Don't you remember what I did when I saved you from slavery? Don't you remember? Remember, remember. Remember, why do we take communion, the Lord's Supper, every single week? God forbid this becomes just some sort of, you know, uh, rote motion we go through. It's to remember Christ crucified for us, to taste the sweetness of His forgiveness. See, we forget so easily, don't we? We are such forgetful creatures. And some of us, some of us forget the good promises of God. And because we forget them, we suffer. We suffer consequences. We suffer just not knowing the joy of, wait a second, this is what God has promised for me. And I can revel in those things. But some of us don't even know them. It's not an issue of forgetfulness for some of you. It's an issue of a very dusty Bible like if research is right, it says that um, a large majority of people in this room, you could not locate the Ten Commandments in your Bible or the Beatitudes, let alone say what they mean. I don't I'm set to judge you. Please hear me. Here's what, I'm, what I want you to hear. How can you possibly, how can you possibly remember what you don't know? Right? You, you don't forget what's never been there. You understand, Scripture is meant to do something for you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days, let's talk about your Old Testament. Let's talk about the book of Numbers, as crazy as that sounds. Was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul goes, I want to encourage you. I want you to open your Bible and feel encouraged. I want you to read it and go, man, this is, this is doing something for me. God isn't there to just beat you over the head with the Bible. He wants you to open it so you go, man, this is so encouraging to me. This is why, this is why we just are like a drumbeat about you being in church and, and habitually submitting and listening to the Word of God. This is why we're so big about growth groups and you being in a place where with a, with a small group of people, you're unpacking the Word of God, listening to what it says, applying it to your life, praying together. This is why we're so big about reading your Bible, just picking it off the shelf and hearing it. Like, what do you fill in your mind with? See, every one of us have 168 hours a week. How much of your time, and I'm not saying it has to be 160 out of 168, but you know what? How much time do you spend knowing, understanding, listening to, getting the Word of God inside of you? Because you cannot possibly be encouraged by something you don't know. And God wants to encourage you so that you'll have endurance. So, so sometimes we suffer 
because we forget. But the third thing, and this is really where he spends most of his time, is the difference between the, 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 the correlation between hardship and discipline. So he's going to tell us over and over in the remaining verses that God's, there's discipline, discipline, discipline. We suffer as Christians very often because of discipline. Now let's talk about discipline for a moment. What is the purpose of all discipline? Well, we can think of a lot of reasons. Let me give you three reasons why I discipline my children, why you ought to discipline your children, why you should be receiving discipline uh, in your life. Why, why would we see discipline as a good thing? So there's, there's three things, kind of big, broad categories I give you. The first one is just correction. Okay, one of the reasons, one of the purposes for discipline is correction, right? We, we look, we go, you just did something. I don't ever want you to do that again, and so I'm going to discipline you so you'll never do it again. If you do that, that thing could kill you, right? My, my mom comes home when, when uh, I was a kid, and she walks in the house, and she sees, this is in the days, remember refrigerators that latched shut? you know, that actually killed people. Remember these? Um, and she walks in the house and she sees a phone cord going into the refrigerator. Like, what is going on? And she opens it up and there's my sister on the phone in the refrigerator. It's like, what in the... You're gonna... It's like, you understand your, your oxygen was about to be eliminated completely, Right? So this would have killed you. So you, wait, you discipline, you correct people at that moment and say, you must never do that again. God does this. Remember King David? David, David is sent everybody off to war. He's, he's sitting there on his balcony. He looks out. There's a beautiful naked woman uh, taking a shower on a, on a balcony. He can see, tells his guards, go get her. Bring her to me. They take her, take her into his chamber, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he raped her. She was a married woman. She ends up getting pregnant. Her husband comes home. He sends him back to the front where he is guaranteed he will die. So in very few short verses, King David, this man of God, has not only lusted, he's committed adultery. He's not only committed adultery, he's committed murder and cover-up and rape and all these things. And God says, no, David, no. You do not get to do anything you want. And he goes swiftly to discipline him. And, and, and one of the ways he disciplines him, it's hard. I mean, his baby dies. There's, there's things that are brought into David's household that were never there before. But David learned his lesson. And look at what he says in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. This was good what you did to me, God. Thank you for that. I was, I was going nuts. I was, I was out there doing whatever I wanted. God, you afflicted me, and now I obey. See, so correction is something we do. But the other one, one other reason, other purpose for discipline is, is prevention, right? That is that we want to prevent somebody from doing something that could be totally destructive. They'll never, I never want that, never want you to go there. I, I, I want to keep some greater harm from happening to you. So I'm going to bring discipline in your life so that, so that the greater 
horrible thing won't actually happen to you. I think about God here. I mean, think what God did with Paul. Paul is this incredible, he writes most of your New Testament. He, he says at one point, I know a man who went up to the third heaven. I have no idea what the third heaven even is, but Paul went there. Paul heard God speak to him. Paul saw miracles that most of us will never see. He is this guy that very easily could have become very arrogant because God was using him in a way, I think it's safe to say, he was probably not using anybody to the degree he was using Paul in his day. And Paul says, you know what God did? He gave me a thorn in my flesh. And we don't know what that is, by the way. I mean, is it a physical ailment? Was it a... Uh, some sort of spirit of affliction, something that came upon him. He says, he gave me this thorn in my flesh. And three times I pleaded with him, God, deliver me. Take this thorn away. And God said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient. And Paul says, you know why God did that? To keep me from being arrogant. Now, hear what he said. Not, I was arrogant and prideful, so God disciplined me. He said, no, God moved first. God came into my life first. God gave me this thorn first so that I would not become prideful. He didn't want that happening to me. He loved me enough to keep me from a sin that could have destroyed me and destroyed what God wanted to do through me. But the last one is just, um, so there's correction, there's prevention. Then think about this with your own kids, education. What's one of the reasons that we discipline? What's one of the reasons that God disciplines? It's for education. It's to help us learn. When I say that, I don't mean you're smarter. I mean you, be, you become more like God. You know more about God. I mean, one of, the, the, one of the problems we have today, I would say the problem in the world today is that we don't know God Right? I mean, this is the, the Bible says there's coming a day, declares the Lord, when the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. That's what God wants. He's not talking about intellectual head knowledge. He's saying, I want you to know me. And so sometimes I bring discipline for that to happen. Think of Job. Right? Job's like, this wonderful, righteous man, for far as you can tell, we're not saying he was a perfect, sinless person, but, on the, uh, but, but he was characterized by righteousness. God allows, for some cosmic reason, God allows Satan to afflict Job with serious pain and suffering. And Job's like, why, 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 God, why? If I could, if I could make my case before you, God, I would, I would, I would, I would you know, you'd find me innocent, and I haven't done anything, and finally, God shows up. And he says, Job, I'm going to talk to you now, and you brace yourself like a man. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I created Leviathan in the deep? Where were you when I, when I separated the water? Where were you when I said to the water, you can come no farther than right here? Were you there? Did you help me? No. So, Job, I don't answer to you. And Job, at the very end of his life, at the very end of God's suffering and pain, says this. Look what he says in Job 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. God, you know what you did? You know what you did through all that in my life? You taught me something. I know more about you. See, people that go through suffering would say this very many times. I may not know why. I may not know what God is up to, but I'll tell you this. I know God more. I know Him. 
And that has been a comfort to me, and that has carried me through so many more things. God has been so dear to me in my suffering. Okay, so now, that's sort of the purpose of all suffering. Then what's the point of the suffering that the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about? What's the point of suffering and pain and discipline when God does it? So let's look at that next, the point of God's discipline, okay? Why else might God discipline you or discipline me? This is what he's going to tell us from the rest of chapter 5, verse 5 down through uh, verse 11. Okay, and the first thing he's going to say is one of the reasons, the one of the points behind God's discipline is to prove that he loves you. So now look at the rest of verse 5. My son, do not regard highly the discipline of the Lord, nor, by, nor be weary when reproved by them. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here's the point. I love you. Like, yep, I love you right where you are. I really do. Come to me. If you don't know Jesus today, he's not saying get all better and clean up and you got to get rid of all this baggage. He's saying come to me now. I will take you exactly how you are with all of your sin, with all of your baggage. Come to me. And then he's going to say, but I love you too much to leave you that way. I love you. And I'm going to prove to you my love. By disciplining you, right? I mean, he, I, he wants us to grow, and, and you start to see that discipline is a gift. So, so, so look what the psalmist says in Psalm 94. He says, blessed is the man, blessed, like happy is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. That's crazy, right? Who talks like this? And whom you teach out of your laws. This makes me happy. Psalm 119, he says, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And I see that as a faithful thing on your behalf. Or listen to what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I love you. Listen, I, I want you to know, I want you to be unmistaken that I love you. And so I'm going to discipline you. Now I've got, you've got to see that. See, if I let my children do whatever they want, and there is no discipline. I don't care. Dad, can we play in the street? I don't care. Dad, uh, I want to, I wanna, you know, drink a, a pint of vodka, whatever. Dad, I'm going to bring my girlfriend home to sleep with. Fine. There's not one person in here that would say, Chris, you're being ultra, ultra loving. What you'd say to me is, you don't care. You don't care. See, the opposite of love isn't a hate. The opposite of love is apathy. You're apathetic towards your children. God's saying, nobody, nobody is going to accuse me of being apathetic. I love you. But then look what he says next. He says, I want to prove that you're my child. Look at, look at verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen, let me say it this way. When God saves you, his love, maybe I could say it this way, goes from being general to very particular. See, let me say it this way. It's possible, and I, I, this, I, I can say this, and I can say this with all my heart. I love the children of Foothill Church, okay? I, th- I think that's legitimate. 
But you all know I mean something different when I say to you, I love Gabby, Tucker, Berkeley, and Gracie, my children. They're my children. I don't discipline your kids. I, I know that's, that happens in other cultures. That doesn't happen in America, right? You'll get thrown in jail. But like, I don't discipline. And one of, the, one of the things that shows that they're my children is they receive my discipline. And God says, that's a very loving act. That's something I'm showing you, that you are my children. One proof that he's my father is that he disciplines me. See, why do we discipline our children? Because we love them. Right, right, right. Isn't that the ultimate message we want our kids to hear? Not, I'm angry at you. I mean, that should never be the, the heart of a disciplinarian. Not that I, I, just, I just feel like venting. That's, that's, that's evil. It's at the bottom of this. I love you too much to not say something about this, to not do something about it. See, we have this weird culture we live in that pretends that what God does is never does that. All that God wants, hey, you know what? What makes you happy? You decide, I'll never push against you. I'll never say that's wrong. I'll never object to your lifestyle because all I want is your happiness. And you get to define what that means. But I dare say, you don't have a real relationship with anyone who can't challenge you. If Michelle can't challenge me, I am the grand poobah in our home, and she can tell me nothing, you would be right to say, that's an illegitimate relationship. I don't think you have a relationship with your wife. See, God says, I, I'm pushing back on you. Not, not, this isn't just a, a power trip thing. I, I, I do this because I'm, I'm trying to help you, not to hurt you. I love you like a son or like a daughter. Well, let's look at the next thing. Look at verse 9. He, he wants to help you live life to the fullest. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. See, what, is, what happens when my dad disciplined me? Uh, I can look back and say, I respect my father for that. He didn't beat me. He wasn't angry. He didn't lash out at me. In fact, my dad would, would very often, when, when, when discipline was over, he would put me on his lap and he'd say, son, I, I want you to know, remember, I love you. I, I love you. That's one of the, the sweetest memories I have is I respect my dad. I can look back and go, you know, my, my dad was, there was times my dad was hard. There might be people looking in from the outside that go, man, he's, he's hard on his kids. I mean, he makes them work hard. And I would look back and say, yeah, he did. Thank you, dad. Right? I mean, Saturday mornings, all the kids are like, can Chris come out and play or you know, Brad come out and play, whatever. Nope, they're picking weeds. Nope, they're mowing the lawn today. Nope, you know, whatever. Dog poop. I don't know. What, they're, they're doing something. And they're going to work hard today. Maybe sometime later this afternoon they'll be able to do it. And I look back and I say, thank you, Dad, for teaching me that. Now, you know what that did? That gives me respect. So he says, you know, what, you, know what, you know what the benefit that accrues to an earthly father when he disciplines you and you submit to it is respect. What's the benefit that accrues to God? He says this. 
He says, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If, we'll, if we will actually submit to the hand of discipline of God, he says, uh, I want you to live. I want you to know life. See, we have this, the Bible tells us there is a way that seems right to a man in his own eyes, but in the end, it leads to death every time. If you follow the way of Disney and follow your heart, you're going to die. But, but if you follow God, Jesus comes along and says, I came that you would have life and have it abundantly, and you have no clue how to get there, so follow me. See, we go abundant life. Oh, you know what that means? That means life without restrictions. That means life without boundaries. I just get to do whatever I want. I sort of make up my own purpose, make up my own meaning. There is no overarching purpose. There is no overarching meaning. I got to go after that and find it for myself. That's really living. That's really freedom. And you Christians want to take people, restrict them, put them in a box, take away all their creativity, and put all these boundaries around them. No. See, um, any more than a a parent who says to a child, play within the fence, is trying to hurt them. They're saying, I don't want you to die. I want you to flourish. God, God, God isn't after trying to kill us through this. He's not after. See, think, think of it this way. Is there anyone you can think of that lives life without boundaries that you'd want to trade places with? I can't imagine. I can't imagine a marriage without boundaries. Gross. I can't imagine a career without boundaries. I can't imagine raising kids without boundaries. I can't imagine playing a sport without boundaries. Like boundaries are in some ways what give life meaning. The boundaries of God are where he says, man, if you'll stay in this, there's this circle of blessing. And if you'll be inside of this, you will know abundant life. Step outside of this. Go do your own thing. You have the freedom to do that and you will feel the pain. And I'm trying to keep you from that. He wants us to live. But then look at verse 10. He says he, he wants to make us more like Christ. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. There it is. What's he trying to do? I'm trying to make you more holy. What does it mean to be more holy? Like, you know, it means just simply this, to look more like Christ. I'm actually trying to make you look more like Christ. The most holy Christ-like person that you can think of in your mind when you say, man, when I'm around them, I feel like I'm in the presence of Jesus. I can promise you that person has submitted to the most discipline in their life. And it reminds me, Michelangelo's David, you know, it's his masterpiece. I don't, I don't know anything about sculptures, but as I understand it, A sculptor, Michelangelo, did not just go out and say, well, there's a big piece of marble. I think I'll make David. That isn't how it worked at all. He actually went and was very um, uh, particular about the slab of marble that he wanted. So he said, okay, I mean, here's this chunk of marble, and he goes, there's David. There he is. Now all I have to do is chip away the parts that don't look like David. 
That's it. That's all God's doing. Just want to chip away the parts that don't look like Jesus. And that's discipline. And it hurts. And we don't like it. But now look what he says. He says that'll make us holy. But then he says he's doing it to make us more fruitful. So look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? True? Everybody? Like, yeah, that's exactly. I've never gone, yeah, this is awesome. We don't live 50 shades of gray. That's not what's happening here. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Where? To those who have been trained by it. He says, I want you to bear more fruit. You know what discipline is? Discipline is like pruning. Discipline is God walking into the garden of your life, and you're the tree, and going, I'm going to prune you now. Okay? And no gardener goes to prune the apple tree and looks at it and says, man, I love this. He fiendishly saws things off. Ooh, I love watching this thing bleed. It's not to hurt you. It's not to be fiendish. He's not trying to destroy you. I do this, I prune you, and I know this hurts, and I know the sap runs, and I know you bleed sometimes, but I'm doing this not because I want to kill you, but because I want you to flourish, not because I want less fruit, I want more fruit. I want you to be as fruitful as possible, and the only way that's going to happen is through the discipline, the pruning process. Now, do you see what all this is telling you? I mean, do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that there is no wasted pain in the life of a Christian. He's saying that, that our, our discipline, the pain that we feel, the, the, the trials that we go through, the suffering that we endure, every ounce of it has meaning. No one else can say that. Almost every other religion in the world sees suffering, sees pain as some bad thing to avoid Christianity doesn't say, hey, we want to run after pain. Christianity says, if the pain comes, we may not know what God is doing, but we can very definitely know why. He's showing me he loves me. He's not punishing me. You understand there's a huge difference? Punishment doesn't even have to be remedial. Just lock somebody up. I don't really care if you, are, uh, you get better or not. All I care is that you have committed a crime and I'm going to punish you for it. That is not discipline. Discipline is always, always, always redemptive. God's actually working for His glory and for your good. I'm not out to harm you, but not to help you. Every bit of our suffering has meaning. Praise God. Which gives all the more meaning when Paul says that we know all things work together for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. Even the pain. Let's pray.